All right. How are we all doing today? How could you not be good on a day like today, right? You don't know how much I wish I could answer Jesse's call and shred that guitar back there. Oh, man. Well, yeah, too busy. Thanks for giving me an out there, Randy. But... I'm one of those guys that have absolutely zero talent. I think the reason why some people are so talented is they got their share and mine. Because I just have absolutely, I could not carry a beat if I had to, so. But it would be cool. Today we're dealing with uh, kind of a tough topic, which makes me happy because ironically, I always think it's easier to teach on tough topics than it is easy ones. Because oftentimes what we learn in here is when we hit land on something in the New Testament that sounds heavy-handed or harsh or judgmental, it's often because we don't slow down enough and take the time to see what this really says. And that's certainly the case today because as this passage that we're going to deal with starts out, at first it really seems to be, uh, you know, just really heavy. Uh, and we're reminded of something else that we say a lot of times from up here about how we also fail to factor in the truth that God's vantage point is often different than our human one. For instance, we often, when we think of life, we think of life in terms of ups and downs, don't we? There's always highs and lows going through life, and that especially becomes true when we get engaged in church or religion because there's a lot of highs and lows in that process too and we tend to see that uh, even in religion uh, there's highs and lows because God is up here in heaven and we're down here on earth and uh, the trick then is to either for us to aspire to the heavens and get up there with him or else coax him to come down here with us so and even the TV evangelists are talking about aspiring to greatness and how we're going from the guttermost to the uttermost, from the outhouse to the penthouse, amen. <laughs> More ups and downs and highs and lows. But interest, you know, and even in death, we think of highs and lows. Somebody passes away and our first question is, well, did he go up or did he go down? <laughs> so even then, it's highs and lows. But interestingly, when you get into the Bible, it has very little to say about ups and downs. It has a lot to say about ins and outs. And nowhere is that more obvious than when we get into this passage that we're dealing with today. And in our worship bulletin, rarely do I try to add anything to what the Bible says, but today I actually took the liberty to just highlight all the ins and outs of this passage we're dealing with. Philippians 2, 12 through 18, this says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure 
children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which, see I missed one, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Wow. Anybody dizzy yet? (laughs) Well, I am. That's a lot of ins and outs. Uh, But where do we go with this? The first thing that this says is continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Ooh, that sounds tough, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like fun. (laughs) And the first place they lose me in this is it tells me, first of all, to continue to work. I don't like work. So they lost me right there. I, as you know, I have uh, what some people call an addictive personality, which simply means when I like something, I really like it. <laughs> and one time somebody asked if I was ever in danger of becoming a workaholic, and I said, God, no. I said, Fortunately, I only get hooked on things that feel good. <laughs> so I think I'm safe there. But it tells me to work. And even worse, it doesn't just say work. They use the term work out. What do you think of when you hear the term work out? Well, one thing I think of is exercise. Well, that's redundant. (laughs) I don't like exercise. Never have. Uh, So when I think of workout, I think like, well, exercising. I tried lifting weights one time, but they were really heavy. (laughs) And then running. It's like, you know, that's another thing. If I run, I'm going to run to the nearest telephone booth and call somebody to give me a ride, <laughs> get me back home. I, just working out just never attracted me much. And, and I'm, I'm a busy guy. I don't sit around a lot. But if you ever see me sitting on the couch, I'm not just sitting there. What I'm doing is I'm busy avoiding sports-related injuries. <laughs> that's why I'm sitting there, because I've never had one of those and never will. So... So the whole concept of working out is, uh, you know, and the other thing that I think of when I think of working out, that's also a term we use when I think of working out some problem. If Because I'm a thinker, and before I do anything, I have to figure it out in my head. So a lot of times I'll be, if I have a problem, I've got to, I'm working it out. And the very term working it out implies that I have a problem that needs solving. Like, uh, for instance, as you know, I'm kind of a motorhead, and I know that drives the wife crazy sometimes because before I tear it, if I have a big car project, before I can tear it apart in reality, I have to tear it apart in my head. <laughs> and I go through, I read the service manual and mentally go through all these steps of the process and ask myself, can I do this? And I try to picture myself doing it. It's a little neurotic, but that's how I do it. But, or working it out. I also think of those old relationship books that they printed back in the 80s and 90s. Where Remember some of those, they talked about men and how a lot of times they go into their cave. They have this cave that they go into. And they, 
encourage the ladies. You know, when your man gets home from work, you got to leave him alone for that first hour because he has to go work things out. <laughs> he has to decompress. So he's, he's, if he just seems withdrawn, he's, he's in his cave. So, and don't go in there. You don't want to go in after him because there's a bear in that cave. <laughs> if you go in that cave to get your husband out, probably meet the bear. So eventually you leave him alone and he'll come out on his own, especially if you make a sandwich for him. <laughs> that might help lure him out. I don't know. But but that's so I think of working things out. That's, I, that's another thing I think of. But wait, it gets worse. It not only says work out your salvation, but it says to work it out with fear and trembling. Oh, well, that sounds like a buzzkill too, doesn't it? You know, work it out. And what I think of when I read that part of the passage, it's not only work out your salvation, but be afraid. Be very afraid. You'd better have fear. You'd better tremble. I'm thinking, wow, man, this would fit perfectly. Where do you file that? Well, it would file perfectly if I buried it in the Old Testament. But this appears smack dab in the center of the New Testament. It's like it it doesn't fit, does it? You see, the first challenge I think we have when we read this is one of the misconceptions I get when I read this passage is I assume what it says is not to work out my salvation, but I think I have to work it in. The problem is being unsaved. The solution is trying to figure out how do I get saved. So I picture myself in my mind as being somebody who lacks something, but I need it, and I have to figure out how to get it. So again, where my head immediately goes when I read this is, how do I work salvation in? It reminds me of a, a story I read one time of a pastor who was invited as a guest preacher to go and, and preach in this little congregation in this little country town. And what they were doing, if I remember the story right, they were shopping for a new pastor. So he was invited to come speak to this congregation. And in order to cut to the chase and kind of gauge the spiritual health of that congregation, he starts out his talk by asking two simple questions. The first question he asked is, would everyone here who is a Christian raise their hand? And in that congregation, everybody immediately raised their hand because it would be uncool to deny that you were a Christian. To them, in their belief system, that would be like denying Christ. Ooh. So they immediately knew that the right thing to do was raise their hand. Now here at Hope Community, if we were to ask that question and everybody raised their hands, we're doing it wrong. <laughs> because the foundation of our ministry, this is a seeker-oriented service. Our whole ministry isn't about us, it's about them. The last thing that we ever want to become is a holy huddle for the frozen chosen. <laughs> so, believe me, it is perfectly okay in here to say, I'm not there yet. Because this place exists primarily for people, new people, to come 
to get their questions answered. How can you commit to something until you know what you're committing to? So that's the purpose of our ministry. So hopefully there's people that that aren't there yet, that aren't believers. But in this little congregation, everybody, yeah, we're all Christians here. So that immediately told this pastor that he had one problem. They don't have any outreach. <laughs> and then he asked the second question. Will all the people who know that they're going to heaven raise their hand? And not one person would raise their hand. They looked at each other and, well, and it was very uncool to be so arrogant as to say, yes, I'm assured that I'm going to heaven. The reason that that was uncool in that particular place was because this, what we, he was dealing with was a performance-based religion where they didn't believe that anybody could have that assurance because they thought it was death and then judgment. So they had to wait and die before they could find out if they made the cut or not. Now, what I find when I study this whole passage here that we're dealing with today, what I really find is all of Hope Community Church's core beliefs tucked into this one simple passage. And for those that remember, going, this is going back a ways since we've taught on these, but the foundational beliefs of our ministry are that the bar is behind us. Heaven is in front of us. There is a lost world around us. Jesus is inside of us, and the devil is beneath us. Those, that is great stuff. <laughs> I never get tired of those. And so foundationally, what we know to be true by studying the New Testament is the bar. The bar of judgment is behind us. We're not facing judgment. We've already been judged. We went to that court and pled guilty. <laughs> but Christ is the one that made it over that bar. So because of what he did, we have the comfortable assurance that we do not face that judgment at the end of our life. We already know we're in. We know we are saved. And that is a good, good thing to know. And now that we know that the bar is behind us, we know that heaven is in front of us. However, we're not there yet because there is also a lost world around us. And that shouldn't be shocking or surprising to us at all. Even in this passage, you know, it talks about us being in a crooked and depraved generation. Now, isn't that interesting? Would anybody agree that we live in a crooked and depraved generation? Oh, man. You turn on the news. You pick up a newspaper. You look at a, the movies every place. I'm, it's in my face <laughs> how crooked and depraved we are. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. He, too, was in a crooked and depraved generation. So nothing has really changed, has it? It's not like we're the only generation that ever had to deal with that. So there's always been a lost world around us. But there's also Jesus inside of us. We've also written that later, you know, as, you know, the Holy Spirit or God is inside of us. But as Mike often says, it's a package deal. If you've got one, you've got all three. Three persons, one God. So, but I always personally like, you know, Christ himself inside of us. You know, the 
the mystery of the gospel, the great news of Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what made Christ Christ was he had a human body, just like us, but a divine spirit. His body was a container for God's spirit. What makes us Christians? Same exact thing. Human body, divine spirit. And that's the point when we read on here is we think we're supposed to work our salvation in. But actually, the next line says, for it is God who works in, not us. God works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Hmm. So you see, our job is not to work salvation in, it's to work it out. God works our salvation in. And that provides an entirely different picture then, doesn't it? I don't need to worry about getting it. I need to worry about giving it away. That's how we work it out. So what's really encouraging us to do here is to work our salvation out. How do we, we've, we're not doing all this stuff to get it. We're doing all of this stuff because we've got it. And our challenge as believers isn't how we get it or get more of it. It's how can we package this thing to help other people? How can we get out there into that lost, fallen world and give this away? That becomes the challenge. And when it tells us to give it away with fear and trembling, what's that mean? Be afraid? No. What that means, I believe, there's some different angles and ways of looking at that, but first of all, it is scary to try and give Christianity away, isn't it? It's kind of socially unacceptable. In today's world, it's kind of uncool. <laughs> you want to be the cool kid, well, you know, you don't want to talk about God and Jesus, but yet, what it but so there is, I think, a natural amount of fear. Even uh, even in the account of Peter, you know, denying Christ the night before uh, Christ was arrested. You know, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. I'm going to walk right in there with you. I'm not afraid of soldiers. I'm not afraid of prison. A few hours later, he denied Christ. Why? Humiliation. He didn't want to look bad. And that little thing tripped him up where the big things didn't, but that little thing. God forbid I suffer embarrassment or humiliation. How ironic. So to work this out with fear and with trembling, but you know me, how I think, how this brain of mine works. I always tend to see things backwards or opposite. When I study something, I try to see not only what it says, but what it doesn't say. What it could say, but it but it doesn't say. And you know what, ironically, you know what would be even scarier in this passage? Is if it, in, if it ordered us to work out our salvation without fear and trembling. See, wouldn't that actually make a higher bar than with it? If you were, you'd better do this without fear and without trembling. See, 
Now, I, I'll be the first to admit that I'm, I've had a pretty good life. I've never had my metal tested. I've never had to ru- rush into battle. I've never had to pull children out of a burning bus. I've never had to defuse a bomb. I've never had to ask a girl to the prom that I didn't know. <laughs> so I've never really had to face any horribly scary things like I know a lot of people in this room have. So so I've never had a lot of scary things, but in those times in life where I have had to face some things that were scary to me, I remember one time somebody, I was facing something, and somebody asked if I was scared, and I went, of course I'm scared. But I would be more worried if I wasn't worried. (laughs) Ironically, when that day comes, when I face something scary and I'm perfectly calm, then I have something to worry about. Then I'm worried that the red lights on my dashboard burned out (laughs) because I should be scared. And that's where we start to understand that the word courage Courage is not defined as the absence of fear, but rather the ability, the ability to act in spite of it. People that I think are courageous, it's not, they're not able to do the things they do because they're not scared, but rather despite the fact that they are scared almost to death, they are able to override that and do that anyway. You know, in a conversation I had, you know, with my friend just this morning talking about that and some of the things he faced in the military. I'm just fascinated by that courage. But like he just said this morning, the trick is to learn to override that fear and do the job that needs to be done, despite those feelings. So it's okay to have fear and anxiety. It's okay to tremble. The other angle on this also is that the word fear doesn't necessarily mean to be afraid in a normal sense. For instance, even in the Old Testament, when they talk about fear of the Lord, they don't mean to be afraid of God because he's scary or he's going to hurt you. The word fear is more accurately translated as the word reverence, awe. The best example I can come up with, and by the way, I've really been impressed the past few weeks because both Jay and Mike used gun analogies up here. <laughs> Just want to give a shout out. I really appreciate that. I mean, I'm back there. I don't usually scream amen, but I almost did those days. And, wow, gun analogy. So far be it for me to not follow suit. So, you know, but but it's like, you know, I'm I'm not afraid of guns, but I have a healthy respect for them because they can do a lot of damage. And if I clear a weapon and I know that it's unloaded, yeah, you know, I'm, I can be a little bit cowboy with it. You know, I could twirl it on my finger or, you know, point it in an unsafe direction and pull the trigger because I'm kind of stupid that way. Click, click. <laughs> but if that thing is cocked and loaded, I'm not... I have, that thing starts to radiate this awe, this healthy respect where I know this thing is ready to go. And I'm not going to be twirling it around or playing quick draw with it. I just have a very healthy respect for that thing. And I'm handling it very gingerly because I don't want that to go off. And I know it could. And you see, I think, and it doesn't mean that I'm afraid of it, but just I have this respect. 
And that's the kind of respect that I believe we have when we encounter God, when we encounter holiness, when we encounter glory. It should generate a healthy amount of respect. And the word trembling, too, doesn't necessarily mean shaking in fear. As Mike pointed out in a conversation, that word also can be caused by excitement and anticipation. If anybody has a dog and you come home and you just he starts shaking, why? Because he's afraid of his master? No, exactly the opposite. He's excited to see you. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> he starts shaking. And you see, so so when we have opportunities to work our salvation out, to give away what has been so freely given us. It's not that we're afraid of telling people, but sometimes we actually find ourselves excited because we have the key to fit their lock. We have the solution to their problem, and that's an exciting thing. So even though it's kind of uh, scary on the one hand, it's also very exciting on the other. So it tells us not to work this out, but work it in. And then it goes on to say, do everything without uh, do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Hmm. Now, there again, another one of the outs it says there is hold out. Now, when I hear hear the term hold out, I think of mafia movies, uh, gangster movies, like the Sopranos. Holding out is not a good thing if you're in the mob. (laughs) You holding out on me? (laughs) You know, it means you're not giving something up that you should. But in this passage, holding out doesn't mean withholding. But the it literally translates holding out as in offering something. The picture there is like somebody serving cocktails or uh, serving wine at a banquet where they come up with a tray and they bow and they, they hold it out in front of you and offer it to you. Hold out the word of life. Well, that's a good picture. And that's exactly what we do. We offer this to other people. We don't withhold it, we hold it out. And in that vein, when it talks about, you know, the attraction of Christianity, we, we operate here on the principle of attraction rather than promotion. I like that. Because when it says hold it out, the one thing you cannot translate the words that, you know, in the Greek, hold out, it doesn't say shove it down their throat. <laughs> You just can't make it say that. We offer it. We don't force it on anybody. So it is about attraction. And that that always raises the question, what is exactly attractive about Christianity? I read a passage in a book one time. It says the power of attraction lies in attractiveness. Oh, that is the dumbest thing. <laughs> I have ever heard, but yet it's brilliant. At first, I thought, well, that's like saying water is really wet. <laughs> but the power of attraction lies in 
attractiveness. Why is something, why does something attract us? Because by its nature, it is attractive. We're drawn to attractive things, and that's how we attract. So what exactly is it about, what is the attraction to Christianity? And that's where a lot of people would take this passage and where it says, uh, they would focus in here that the attraction is us being blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. So they would focus on the parts in that line where it talks about, okay, to be attractive, we need to be blameless, pure, and without fault. But I ask you, is that really attractive? <laughs> That's, I, it's kind of, it's always struck me as ironic that one of the criticisms of Christians is, well, they think they're so much better than everybody else. Once again, going back to the ups and downs, you know, they think they're better than us. And it's a criticism. Oh, they're just so much better than me. Now, if you think about that, that is kind of a crazy statement. Because if I have neighbors, I kind of hope they're better than me. <laughs> that means they're safe to live next to. <laughs> I really don't want to live next to somebody that can get angry like me or judgmental like me or who's fussy like me or petty like me. I think if everybody in this world was better than me, this would be a great place to live. <laughs> The people I really have a problem with are the ones that are even worse than me. <laughs> but yet they turn that around into a, a criticism. How crazy. So but what attracted me to Christians was not that they were better than me, but rather they were different than me. Oh. See, I wasn't sure I wanted what the Christians had, but what I knew 100% was I didn't want what I already had. <laughs> I did not want what I already had. And it wasn't, the, and it's not that I was a victim of my failures in life. It was exactly the opposite. I am a victim of my successes in life. <laughs> I didn't end up here because I never got what I wanted. Just the opposite. I got everything exactly the way I wanted it. And that's how I hit bottom. I was very good at arranging and orchestrating things, so I got everything I wanted. But it was never enough. It never satisfied. It never scratched that itch. So, ironically, the attraction was that I saw people that had something different. And this passage tells us exactly what they had different. It wasn't about behavior, but about belief. Notice what it says. It's not that they're without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. It's they were children of God in a crooked and uh, depraved generation. See, Christianity is all about relationship. And what made Christians different was the quality of their relationships, the quality of their marriages, the quality of their friendships, the way that they approached work, the way that they approached life, having that comfortable assurance, they not only knew a lot about God, they knew him personally. They not only knew a lot about the Bible, they knew the author. <laughs> they knew the guy that wrote it. And it's through those relationships 
See, they had a healthy relationship with God. They weren't afraid of him. They weren't avoiding him. They didn't deny that he existed, just the opposite. They were perfectly comfortable having a relationship with God and talking intelligently about it. And they had healthy relationships with each other. It doesn't mean that we're always hitting on all eight cylinders with others because sometimes the best of us, we can't get along with people, and, you know, we have defects of character. And even if we try our best, it doesn't mean the other person is pulling the same direction. But what it does mean is we have a different foundation under our life. And as Christians, we have a whole different worldview. So we can look at this world and file things differently than normal people. Because for the non-Christians, really, all you have is this world. And even Paul says, if all there is is this world, then the Christian is to be despised as the most miserable of creatures. It says if these people are right and you live, you die, nothing matters. So let's eat and drink and make merry for tomorrow we die. Even Paul admitted that they were doing it right. <laughs> if all there is is this world and this life, what matters? Long life, short life, happy life, sad life, pleasures, no pleasures, doesn't matter. You live, you die, poof. You know, blackness. But if there is life in a second act, if you go from this world to another world, then it changes everything. And I think that's the point, because then when it talks about us shining like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life, you think at night you look up and you see the stars if you drive out into the country and how beautiful that is, but the part that we often miss when we look up in the sky is that the universe is a cold, dark, empty place. That's why it's even called what? Space. <laughs> why? Because there's a lot of empty space up there. And isn't it just true that the only thing that cuts through that blackness is light? Uh, Mike used the example one time, if you go into a jewelry store and they're showing you a diamond, what do they do? They lay it on a black felt background when they show it off because the blackness of that background magnifies the brilliance of the diamond. And in the same way in the night sky, it's the darkness of the night that contrasts the light. And when the Bible talks about Christ coming into this world as the light of the world, a light shining through a very dark place. It's exactly the same with Christianity. See, we have a light. You know, again, the old TV evangelist, better to light a candle than curse the darkness, amen? <laughs> and that's very true. This world could use a little more light. <laughs> and that's exactly what Christ came to do, to illuminate, to brighten. And you see, and that's where when we think of us shining as stars in the heaven, that's exactly what we try to do. And it's not that we generate that light, but we reflect it. More like the moon. The moon actually is dark too, but it's the light of the sun bouncing off of it that makes the moon so bright at night. And in the same way, we reflect 
God's glory. So, and with God's spirit in us, we actually radiate God. And that should be an attractive thing. Now, it's not always attractive to everybody because the Bible also says that some people live in the dark and they love the dark because their deeds are evil. So sometimes that light can be a little blinding. You know, another saying in Christianity, some people come here because they see the light, some because they feel the heat. (laughs) But whatever it takes, that light ultimately should be attractive because it is a good thing. And so then this goes on to say that as we hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. There again, when we think of that whole concept of being poured out, see, it, the only thing that gives us the ability to, that gave Paul the ability to pour this out is because Christ himself poured it in. You can't pour something out of an empty pitcher, can you? And that's where in this passage out of Romans it says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there again, the original one pouring it out is not us, it's Christ himself. He's pouring it out. And what did Christ pour out? You can find passages in the New Testament that said God poured out his blood for us. God poured out his grace for us. God poured out his spirit for us. So as he's pouring it out, we are the empty vessels waiting to be filled. We are the containers. So he pours it into us, and then we can pour it out into the world and out into other people. It's kind of like, uh, well, I got to, I know Gary's here today. I got to use a car analogy. Otherwise, he'll be disappointed. <laughs> so, but it's kind of like a car battery. See, car batteries are designed to be used. So they get charged and they get drained, and they get charged and they get drained. I've had batteries that got left on the charger too long. Juice was coming in, but it never went out. And cooked them, ruined them, burned them up. Now, it wasn't because they didn't have an input. They didn't have an output. Uh, so, And I've had other batteries that went dead because they had an output. They were Something was draining them, but they didn't have any way of getting recharged. You know, like when your alternator burns out. Yeah, you need a new alternator. <laughs> and it's the same thing. So, A battery to stay healthy needs to be drained, and it needs to be charged. And the more it goes through those cycles, the healthier it stays. And in the same way, I think some of us go dead because we have all we have are outlets. Nothing is coming in. We're not getting charged. And for others, that's all we do. We would just want to go to church and get hooked up to that charger, get that juice flowing, but we don't have any outlets. I'm told that the difference in the Holy Land between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, they both feed from the same source. The only thing that makes the Dead Sea dead, they have the same inlet. He doesn't have an outlet. 
the water flows in and doesn't have anywhere to go. So it sits and becomes stagnant and everything in there dies. The Sea of Galilee, on the other hand, the water flows through. It comes in and goes out. That's why in one uh, translation of the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, Lord, make me a channel, a channel of your peace. Let it flow in and out. Uh, yet another analogy, let's just beat this horse to death. Think of it as a human body. You can get sick and die if you don't eat. You need food. You need food coming in, nutrition. But you can also get sick and die if the food comes in and it can't go out. You know, I don't want to use the word constipated in front of church, so, you know, what's another term for spiritually constipated, Mike? (laughs) See, now we can keep talking. You don't need lunch. (laughs) But, but, For some, it comes in and goes out the wrong way. If it comes in and goes out, I've seen people like that. Good stuff goes in and they hear it here and they say it there, but it doesn't provide nutrition. It doesn't feed them because it just goes in and out. But they never really do anything with that. It doesn't apply to their own life. So it just comes in and goes out the wrong way. And for others, it goes in and stays in. I know some people... Uh, one guy I'm thinking of in particular, that guy has an inlet like none I've ever seen. He can run that Bible from Genesis to Revelation and back. But he doesn't have any outlets. Drives him crazy. But in the same vein, I know people that are out giving and giving and giving, but they're not plugged in. And they never let themselves get fed. They never let themselves get recharged and they get burned out. So when we talk about pouring it out, I think we need to remember it pours through us, not just in and not just out. So because it's this whole thing then, to wrap this up, when I first read this passage, it looks like it's all about sacrifice. And when Paul talks about a drink offering, see, that wasn't the offering you offered to get right with God. It was more uh, an offering or a sacrifice out of gratitude because you're already forgiven. And out of gratitude, we add to sacrifices. In this case, it wasn't Paul making the sacrifice himself. He was just adding to a pre-existing sacrifice that others made. But this isn't about sacrifice. It's about service. That's the real point of this whole passage. It's not a, and you see, and we'll close with this. That's why so many of these prosperity preachers get it so wrong. Because what they're teaching is giving to get. Oh, I got $10. I should go to the mall. <laughs> Could buy something, 10 bucks. But I'm listening to that guy on TV. He says, if I send this 10 bucks to him, I'm going to get 100 back. Ooh, that's a good deal. <laughs> If I send it off, now i got a hundred bucks to spend at the mall. <laughs> you see, that's just based on inherent selfishness, isn't it? Giving to get. Now I have more. The biblical model still involves giving to get, but it's giving to get to give. Now I have more to give. 
I'm not getting more so I can have more. I'm getting more so because when I was worked in management, I always gave my best tools to my best employees because they were going to produce the most with the best tools. I think that's not mystical. That's purely practical. Um, in the service, be it military or in the police department, they give the best weapons to the best uh, soldiers, you know, the elite groups get the best weapons. Raleigh might argue that. <laughs> but, but generally, you know, the SWAT team gets the best guns and, you know, special forces gets the best weapons. But you know what they also get? The worst missions. And you see, so we do get equipped based on what we're going to do with these things. And so, Sometimes we receive the, the better stuff, but the purpose isn't just giving to get. It's giving to get to give, equipping us for the right acts of service. And it's really the message of this passage and the message of all of Christianity. The challenge isn't getting it. It's we've got it. How can we best give it away? Dear Father, we just want to say thank you for the opportunity um, to give it away, to give it away, to give it, get it, and give it away. Help us to understand being a conduit, um, a place where you put something not to stay, but to be given away. And, and that is our act of worship for you. Um, we thank you for that opportunity. We thank you for this service. We thank you for, the, for Mark's message as well. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.